We are going to look this morning at verses 1 through 5. Um, I'll say this by way of preface. Romans 9 is, um, has caused, in the words of John Piper, many to turn away from God. And in my own experience was what drew me to Christ. Um, we'll get to those difficult verses in, in Romans 9, 21 and 22 in a few weeks. And it was Romans 9, um, 21 that um, ultimately what God used to drive me to Christ. I thought that he had made me to be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. I sat months before I was converted and, and knowing I didn't know Christ and knowing what a horrible, sinful cesspool I was in and, and, um, and I thought maybe God made me to be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. I knew Romans 9.21 and, and I didn't want to be. And that's why I went to Jesus Christ. So I hope whatever you walk away with in the next couple weeks that you will see that these verses are meant to drive you to Jesus. They're not meant to drive you away from Jesus. The other thing I'll say by way of preface is that the introduction, these first five verses, are probably where we should start when we go to Romans 9, but we tend to jump into verse 6 and following because we're so eager to get into the doctrine of election and to prove it in all of its beautiful nuances in Romans 9. And I think, I hope you'll find this this morning, that the introduction to this, which is the transition from Romans 8 to 9, is actually a fundamental step, an important, very important introduction before we jump into the, the riches and the, the nuances of the doctrine of um, unconditional election. And so I'm going to open us this morning by reading Romans 9, 1 through 5. You'll find that on page 945 if you're using the church Bible. And um, before we do, let's pray and call on the Lord to help us as his word is preached this morning. Father in heaven, we look to you as we come into more difficult portions of your word, and we are grateful for the deep and the profound and the, the worship-soaring statements that you give us in scripture, things that you have revealed that should stir our hearts to cry out, Oh, the depths and the wisdom, both of the riches and the understanding of God, how unsearchable are his ways, past finding out. And so, our God, we pray that even as we wade into this this morning, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would give it power, that Christ would be heard, that you would give us understanding, that you would make us a people that submit to everything that you have said in the scriptures. We thank you that it's for our good, for our redemption, but above all, for your glory. And so, Father, be pleased to bless the preaching of the word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul, remind you, has just said at the end of chapter 8, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Everything works together for good for those who are called by God, even the suffering. And from justification to glorification, everything is guaranteed for the believer. We are safe we are secure because we've been justified, we've been redeemed by Christ. And now the Apostle Paul says in, in chapter 9, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen.
There is arguably nothing more powerful for us as believers as the example that godly men and women set who go before us. When I was a boy, I grew up around a man who would later come to be known as the godliest man I've ever met. I would hear people say he was the godliest man I've ever met. He was the most loving man I've ever met. Uh, I've told you about John Skilton. He was the Greek professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for 43 years, and at the age of 65, he told his students, um, I'm probably going to be retiring soon, but my idea of retirement is, is probably a little different than your idea of retirement. John retired from full-time professorship, and he opened his row house. He was single till he died at 98. He opened his row house in the Vietnamese section of Philadelphia, which later affectionately became known as the Skilton House. And at the Skilton House, you would find on any given day, and my dad used to take me there as a boy, some of the greatest theologians in the world and homeless people with AIDS that lived in the Vietnamese section of Philadelphia. I think to this day, I've never seen anything like that. Some of the smartest, wisest, and I don't say this carelessly, greatest theologians who have ever lived and homeless people with AIDS converging together, singing hymns. John would, at age 80, sleep on the floor and would give missionaries that came to visit his own bed. It was a very powerful example. I carry it with it. I pray uh, many occasions through the year that God would make me more like John Skilton. Now, I tell you that. I tell you that because John was an incredible example. But the Apostle Paul was before John Skilton, an incredible example. And what we find in Romans 9, 1 through 5 is almost unparalleled. We find in Romans 9, 1 through 5 an almost unparalleled example in these verses of the missionary heart of a man who had been subdued by Jesus Christ, a man who had persecuted the church vehemently, who had been behind the murder of the first Christian New Testament martyr Stephen, and this is the man with the, a grief-stricken missionary heart. This is at one and the same time one of the greatest theologians the world has ever seen, and at the same time a man with a burdened heart for the salvation of a people who are rejecting Jesus Christ, who are going to perish, his own brethren, his own countrymen according to the flesh. So great are these verses that Eric Alexander has made this statement. He says, you get an insight in these verses into the quality of life and service and evangelism and caring for people in the Apostle Paul that you get in few other places in the New Testament. And what we learn from this could perhaps be of greater significance than almost anything else that we could learn about evangelism. Now, what's interesting about that is when we talk about Romans 9, immediately we think of verses 6 and following to the end of the chapter. And we think about that difficult doctrine of election and does God really choose some before the foundations of the earth regardless of what they've done and regardless of who they are and he elects some unto eternal life and some he hardens and, and has created as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Is that really the God that we worship and serve? And we'll see next week and the week after. Yes, that is the true and living God. That is the only God. That is not just something that is argued academically or philosophically. It's who God is. It's what God does. But what's interesting is before Paul introduces that, Paul doesn't come at it from an academic approach. He comes at it with a pastor's heart. 
And I think that is strikingly important, that Paul doesn't enter into the doctrine of election to argue on an academic level, though it is academically deep. He doesn't enter in to argue on a merely intellectual level, though we have to use our intellect to understand what he says. He enters into that subject in this transition from chapter 8 to chapter 9, and he gives us a glimpse into the burden that he has in his heart for the evangelization of his own people who had rejected Jesus Christ. And I think that's remarkable because people will always say, well, if the doctrines of election is true, why evangelize? Because Paul did, because Jesus told us to. And, and interestingly, before he gets into the doctrine of election and then should Christians witness, Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I do not lie. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have unending grief in my heart. I could wish that I could be a curse from Christ for my countrymen, my brethren, according to the flesh who were Israelites. And Paul gives us the greatest instruction on evangelism because what motivates the greatest evangelism is to have a burdened heart for God's glory and for the redemption of those around us. And so Romans 9 becomes massively important at the outset, not just in the later verses. There's a question that people have as we come to these verses and they they ask, well, how do they relate to what went before? You might think that we could have just ended Romans with Romans 8. I would challenge you to go back and read Romans 1 to 8, and you could probably close your Bible and say that's a great place to end. And then Paul does all this that he does in 9 through 11 and then 12 through 16. And, and some theologians have said, well, what Paul really wanted to get to was what he says in Romans 9 through 11. So 1 through 8 was just preliminary. It was just introductory. And this is what he wants to get to. I don't think that that's the case. I think Paul said what he wanted to say. In Romans 1 through 8. I think Paul is saying what he wants to say in 9 through 11 because Paul is, as we've seen through this series, a man who likes to take up objections. He can hear someone saying, well, Paul, you just said that according to God's purpose, every one of his people will be brought to glory. All things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You're telling us, Paul, that God's purpose is to bring his people to glory, that God's purpose never fails, that as I told you the last time I was with you, in the words of of C.H. Spurgeon, nothing can stop this God. Nothing can stop this God. Paul has risen to the heights, and he has said that the purpose of God in bringing his people to glory, can never be stopped. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Height, death, height, depth, principalities, powers, anything in the created universe. What can separate us? Nothing. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so you can understand the objection, can't you? You can start to hear it. Well, what about the seemingly failed purposes for Israel? Weren't they God's people? Wasn't God in covenant with Israel? Didn't God work through Israel through most of redemptive history? They haven't believed on Jesus. Has God's purpose failed? Has his word failed? Has his promise failed? What Paul is going, not, not going to say, he's not going to say, no, it hasn't. They're all going to be saved. He doesn't say that. In fact, Paul leads with the assumption in these verses that most of the Israelites in his day were perishing. He leads with that assumption. Now, we're going to see two things today as we consider Paul's grief-stricken missionary heart. First, we're going to consider the demonstration or the exhibition of this grief-stricken heart. And then secondly, we're going to consider the reason for this grief 
stricken missionary heart. Well, notice that Paul, as he wades into this, he says, he uses this very interesting introduction. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is uncharacteristic of Paul. And as I read this and as I meditated on what Paul's doing, I thought, you know, there's one thing that I don't like as a pastor is when people come to me and they say, I ain't going to lie to you because I'm like, good, don't. Right? And maybe you've had that, that saying, I'm not going to lie to you. Okay, what do you want? <laughs> but Paul does that very thing. Paul says, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm telling the truth. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have unending grief and a burden to see the people that I have always been around come to know Jesus Christ. Paul gives this this disclaimer, I think, because you can naturally hear some of the Jewish people who have been listening to Paul, who have heard Paul's teaching in the gospel. You could hear them say, well, Paul... And you see this in the book of Acts. He teaches against our nation. He teaches against our people. He teaches against our customs. He hates us. He's doing this out of some some desire to be seen or heard. He wants to do this to to heap scorn on us and on our tradition. And Paul is very sensitive to that. Paul understands that he will, will lose a hearing if he is misunderstood. And Paul wants to gain a hearing. He wants to gain a hearing with anyone and everyone. And he has said at the beginning of this book that the gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Greek. In redemptive history, it was first to Israel, And then it was to the nations. And Paul is there at the precipice of the transition from the gospel going to the Jews to the gospel going to the nations. He is leading the mission of God to the nations. This is the man leading that mission out from Israel into the nations. And yet, this is the same man who wanted to go back to Israel. He didn't want to go to the Gentiles. He wanted to be a missionary to Israel. He he asked the Lord if he could go back. And yet the Lord said, no, Peter will do that. You will go to the nations. And Paul is, Paul is careful not to be misunderstood. So Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. Now, Paul is not taking an unlawful oath or vow. He is saying before the Lord, my desire is for Israelites to be saved. I, I have a burden on my heart. Christ knows that. It's because I'm in Christ that I have this burden. It's because I've been redeemed by Christ that I have this burden. I want to say this this morning. If we lose missionary zeal, it's because we've lost a sense of our own need for Jesus Christ. We have somehow thought, I deserve to be where I am. I'm content where I am, and I don't care about people out here. And Paul was always remembering what he was. He knew that he was a man that was undeserving. In a sense, the hymn that we sing here at New Covenant, I find very helpful to kind of summarize all that Paul is saying here in in Romans 9, 1 through 5. uh, How sweet and awesome is the place. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why was I made to hear your voice? And then the hymn writer says, We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. And that's Paul's desire. Paul was a man who could say, why was I made to hear your voice? He'll tell us in the following verses, it's merely because God chose him. 
But nothing he had done, nothing he had contributed. It wasn't even his faith in Jesus. God had plucked the Apostle Paul as a brand from the fire, and Paul had a burden to see God's sovereign grace reach the people that he had grown up with. He longed for that. Notice that Paul goes on to say he's speaking the truth in Christ. And he says, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll find yourself talking to people and they'll say that they're good at talking and they'll talk about what they're doing and what they want to do. And, and you get a sense of insincerity. I don't know if it's that there seems to be a lack of emotion. Um, sometimes you can listen to someone talking about what they want to do, and you can think, you know, I'm not sure that person really wants to do that. There was no mistaking the fact that the Apostle Paul wanted to pour his life out as a living sacrifice to reach people with the gospel. This was a man who could say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. This is very challenging to me as a minister. It's challenging to us as Christians. Do we have... Do we have a conscience that says, my desire is for the people who are around me? My desire is, my desire is to see them redeemed. Um, I, was, I was reflecting on what Luke in Acts 17 says about the Apostle Paul when he went into Athens, which was the epicenter of philosophical thought in the ancient world. And, and um, Acts 17, 19 says that when he looked around, he was, he was grieved in his heart. He was grieved when he saw all the idols. And I thought about my recent travel, and we see more sophisticated idols, don't we? We see very sophisticated, highly sophisticated idolatry, and our hearts are not grieved. And Alex Eric Alexander makes the point that we walk around and we rub shoulders with people day after day who don't know God, and, and it's as if just rubbing shoulders with them. And that's not at all what the Apostle Paul was. This is a man who says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You know, I sometimes think, what would the church look like if people were not just inviting people because their church has a big building and lots of great programs and lots of really beautiful people and... Uh, lots of good entertainment and lots of everything else. And people were inviting people to church because they had continual sorrow and unending grief in their hearts because people are perishing. People are perishing. Sometimes when I'm at the gym and it's full, and these are rare moments for, for me, I'll look around and I'll think, everyone in this room is going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. Every single person. It doesn't matter what they look like, how their body's shaped, how good shape they're in, how bad shape they're in, what ethnicity they are. Every one of them is going to spend an eternity in heaven or hell. And when we start to get that and we start to realize that every one of them needs to hear about Christ and who's going to tell them if we don't? Um, Bob Godfrey, the president of Westminster, California, said once, and I thought this was very powerful, if Christians don't build hospitals, somebody will. If Christians don't proclaim the gospel, nobody will. I want to say that again. If Christians, don't, if Christians don't build hospitals, somebody will. If Christians do not proclaim the gospel, nobody will. 
And, and Paul is not just saying, do your duty in a sort of fundamentalist checklist way. I gave this person a track. I told this person. There have been many times we maybe have witnessed to people and our hearts haven't been right, but we're doing our duty. Paul has a heart that is burdened. It is, it is heavy over the unbelief of his people. Oh, Paul knows. He knows that they're not all saved. That's a presupposition that we see in this. If they were all saved, why would Paul be asking what he's asking when he says, I could wish that I could be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, except they were accursed and they were perishing. They had rejected Christ. And so Paul, in his desire to see these people reached, he's not saying, well, you're okay and I'm okay. I want to say this this morning because I know you know better. I know you know better. The people whom you are around that don't know Jesus, it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. And I understand that we live in a culture that makes that increasingly difficult for even believers to proclaim and teach and accept. But the Bible everywhere says that. There is one way and only one way to glory, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that means if men and women and boys and girls reject Jesus Christ, they will not be saved. And if we, if we downplay that or if we question that, we're never going to have the heart Paul has. And we're going to say, everyone's fine. And that's not love. That's not love. Love is a heart that has great sorrow. Verse 2, unceasing anguish. And then notice how Paul expresses this in verse 3. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul is not asking God to be accursed. Paul is not asking God to unsave him so that they may be saved. Notice the careful way in which Paul says that. Paul says, I could wish, if it were possible for that to happen, I would wish that that happened to me. I would pray that that would happen to me. Paul knows that that's not the case. He's going to go into it in in chapter 9. He's going to say, only those God's chosen are going to believe. But Paul's missionary heart is so burdened for his countrymen, people he calls his brethren, though he knows they weren't brethren in the saved sense. These These are his loved ones. This is his affection, his family, but he knows that they're cut off from Christ and and he wishes that he could substitute himself. The apostle Paul has the same heart as Jesus. And I think it's interesting that Paul, who knew the scriptures better than anyone, I think arguably has to have the words of Moses in his mind at the moment when he writes this. Moses, remember, is up on the mountain in Exodus. He's up on the mountain in Exodus 32, 32, he asks God, because Israel is rebellious there at the foot of the mountain, and Moses says, I pray, blot me out of the book for their sake. Blot me out of the book. And, and Paul is saying, if it were possible, I could pray that I were accursed so that they may be saved. I love this. William Still, William Still says, Jesus did, you have to listen carefully, Jesus did, what Moses and Paul contemplated. Jesus did what Moses and Paul contemplated. Lord, blot me out for them. If I could, I would pray that I could be accursed. And Jesus steps in and is blotted out under the wrath of God. 
he is accursed. He is made a curse. And, and still says, Jesus did what Moses and Paul contemplated. And yet, listen to this, he recovered his life in a new indestructible form, something which Moses and Paul as sinners could never have attained. Jesus was blotted out and then gained his life again. That's why he could be the substitute. That's why he could, he could pray to his father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And the father says to Jesus, it's not possible. The only way is if you become a curse so that others are brought in. And so the apostle Paul, who knows that, has such a longing for the salvation of his people that he says, I could wish that I were cursed for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. I want to make an application here to us. Because I have said sinfully many times in my life, I've heard many believers say sinfully in their life, when we see people that we know or have grown up with um, reject the gospel, we often speak about them as if done with them. I think Romans 9, 1 through 3, ought to be the greatest solution to a heart that says, done with them. They'll get what they deserve. If anyone could have said about anyone, they'll get what they deserve, it's the Apostle Paul to unbelieving Israel who crucified Jesus. Even Jesus himself, hanging on the cross, prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching, he says, you took him, you crucified him with lawless hands. God predetermined what would happen to Jesus, but he has risen him from the dead. Repent and believe that your sins may be blotted out. Our God is so merciful. Our God is so long-suffering. Our God is so patient that even the very ones who committed the greatest sin, let me say this this morning, you could go out and sin your head off. Whatever is in your wicked heart, you could go do and sin your head off, and it will pale in comparison to crucifying the Son of God. And yet they heard the gospel first. God granted repentance to many of them on the day of Pentecost, and the Apostle Paul, even many years later after that, is still burdened that they would know Jesus Christ. The greatest need in the Christian church today is that men and women would have this heart. I don't think the greatest need is that we learn how to do things right so our church gets a nice building and does this and does that, and we do this and we do this, and we start this ministry and that ministry. The greatest need that the Christian church today is to get this heart. I, I wholeheartedly believe that. And you know why I believe it? Because you don't see it exemplified in almost anyone. It is so rare. It is so rare. I want to read to you again what Eric Alexander said. You get an insight in these verses into the quality of life and service and evangelism and caring for people in the Apostle Paul that you get in few other places in the New Testament. And what we learn from this could perhaps be of greater significance than almost anything else that we could learn about evangelism. All the methods, the programs, the financial support, the mission teams, the committees, the boards, the organizations, the parachurch groups— all of it doesn't matter if we don't get a heart like Paul has. I think about John Skilton, who I mentioned to you at the beginning of this sermon. I think when I think about John and I think about my own ministry, I think automatically of 1 Corinthians 13. If I have all knowledge and if I have all faith that I can move mountains and if I do 
everything else that God wants us to have, faith, knowledge, all these other things, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And how few people I have seen have great knowledge and great faith coupled with great love. How rare, how rare it is. How unbelievably rare it is. You know, people will talk about love till they're blue in the face. Show me love. That's what James says. Talk about faith all day long. Show me your faith. Show me your faith working through love. And, and Paul is giving us this beautiful example that we would be praying. I want to say this this morning. This is not to condemn. This is to challenge us to be praying. Lord, give me a burden for my lost neighbors. Give me a burden for my lost coworkers. Give me a burden for all the kids I go to school with that don't know Jesus, that make fun of Jesus. Give me a burden for those who are making fun of the only one who can save their soul from hell. Give me a burden for wandering children, covenant children who are not walking with Jesus. Give me a burden for my own children. Give me a burden. Give me a grief-stricken heart. Because at the end of the day, it's that heart, it's that heart that produced the fruit of what we see in the New Testament. And I'm going to say this this morning. I really think this is remarkable. It's that heart that is the reason in part why you're sitting here. That man wrote 13 of the New Testament epistles because he had that heart. Because God called him, ordained him, superintended the scriptures, but he had that heart. As he, as he poured himself out for the salvation of even his own people, the Israelites. Well, notice that the second part here is the reason for this grief-stricken missionary heart. He doesn't just say, because they're my brethren. He doesn't just say, because I care about them so deep, deeply and I don't want to see them perish, which is true of all men. We should have that heart for all men. But in a special way, Paul said he had a burden for the salvation of the Israelites. Notice verse 4. He gives us several reasons. Notice, to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Paul's going back and he's saying, look how God nurtured old covenant Israel. He gave them everything. He gave them the fathers, he'll say. He gave them Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He gave them the adoption. He set them apart from the other nations. He gave them the glory, the Shekinah glory that was in the tabernacle was with them in the wilderness. It was there on the temple mount. He gave them the worship. He told them how to worship and where to worship and in what way to worship. He gave them the priesthood. He gave them the sacrificial system. He gave them all of the prophets. He gave them all the the kingdom that he gave them in the Old Testament. Israel lacked Nothing. And for all that, they didn't believe. For all that, through most all of their history, they rejected the one to whom all of it pointed. And yet Paul said, my heart is for them because these were God's covenant people in the old covenant. These were the ones he gave all the nurture to. It was all meant to lead them to faith in Jesus. And Paul is saying, Lord, in a sense, you gave them all that. My heart is to see them turn and believe and understand all that you gave them and how all of it points to Jesus. And then notice he gives one massively, massively important reason why his heart is burdened for Israel. Notice verse 5. He says, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers. Now listen, from their race came the Christ, who is overall God-blessed forever. So the biggest reason Paul had a burden for Old Covenant Israel was that 
from that people God brought the Redeemer. One man has said Israel in the Old Covenant was essentially the womb of the Messiah. I think that's a helpful way to think of it. Israel was, in the Old Covenant, the womb of the Messiah, and in a sense mothered the Redeemer, and yet rejected the Redeemer. I've been thinking a lot about those verses in John chapter 1, 10 and 11, uh, after telling us that the Word made all things, that Christ, made, that nothing was made unless it was made by him, that all things were made through him. And then John says, and tells us he made the world, and then he says he was in the world. I mean, you could just sit there and think about that the rest of your life. <laughs> he made all things, he was in the world. Wow, <laughs> that's huge. It's God overall, made the world, he was in the world, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, Israel, his own. Not only did he create the world, he created the church in the Old Testament. He not only came into the world that he made, he went into the very church that he created for himself, over which he was king and savior, and his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. Paul, Paul sees the unique privileges God gave to Israel, and he's saying, believe on the Lord Jesus. Will you not turn to the Lord Jesus? Will you not trust the one that everything God did for you was pointing I want to make two applications for us this morning on that note. One is that we can have all the privileges, all the right preaching, all the right teaching, the right eldership, the right church structure, the right church government. You can come from a generation of 10 generations, a family of 10 generations of Christians, and you can perish. When someone asks you your testimony, do not tell them that your uncle was a deacon, ever. Because at the end of the day, that will not get you to heaven. And that your dad was a godly man will not get you to heaven. And that your mother was a godly woman will not get you to heaven. And that your husband is a godly man will not get you to heaven. And that your wife is a godly woman will not get you to heaven. And that your children believe will not get you to heaven. Paul's going to go there. He's going to say, it's not according to the flesh, but according to the promise. And Israel took all those privileges and they said, we are better and we are safe because we have all these privileges. And Paul's heart was burdened because they did not know the God who gave them because they rejected the only one through whom they could know him. And so we have to make sure that we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are not using the privileges he gives for us just as a sort of a resume builder in our lives and reputations. Secondly, I would say, do you have a heart for the lost? Because that's really the thrust of this passage. Paul wants us to have a heart for the lost. Not a week goes by that I am not grieved that I don't have a greater heart for the lost. We need to have, we need to be praying that God would give us a burden. Because you know what? If we got a heart like the Apostle Paul had, and that comes from understanding God's purposes, seeing our need for the Savior, understanding that those around us, and being, having the courage to be honest enough that those around us are perishing, perishing if they're not in Christ, that, that if we get a heart like that, the way we would see God use us in the lives of others would be astonishing. It would be astonishing. You know how I know that? Because I see it in the New Testament. I see it in the book of Acts. I see it played out in all the churches that Paul planted. 
We've got 65,000 people in Hinesville and not a good church for them to go to. We should have a burden for that. We've got, we've got 60% people in this town, I've heard, don't go to any church. We should be burdened for all, all, of, all of the area where God has called us. We should have a burden for that. We should be praying, Lord, give me this heart. Give me a heart like the Apostle Paul. Give me a burden for the salvation of those around us. I'll say this too as I close. I think when that happens and we do witness to people, they'll see that we do it in love. Yes, we do it in boldness, but we'll do it in love. Um, It'll be an example to others. It won't feel like you're just trying to check off your witnessing duty. Um, Jesus, remember, even when the rich and ruler walked away, the Bible says he loved him. He loved him in ministry. He, He didn't love him with an everlasting love. He loved him as a man ministering to him. He longed for his salvation. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept because the Pharisees and the scribes kept the people from him. His heart was grieved. Paul had a grieved heart. We should have a grieved heart in the gospel. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray. We pray that you would give us the same heart as the Apostle Paul. We pray that you would give us a heart that is burdened in anguish over um, the way men and women around us, even our loved ones, have rejected the gospel. We pray that you would give us a zeal to see them come to know you. We pray, our Father, that you would motivate us to be zealous in telling others about your son and in inviting them to hear the good news about him. We pray that you would forgive us for fearing man more than being burdened for their salvation. We pray that you would make us confident in the finished work of Jesus and that there's power in the message of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would make us to be a grief-stricken, missionary-minded people in the area to which you've called us here in Richmond Hill and the surrounding areas. And we pray that you would do this for your glory and for the salvation of those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.